0: Hello and welcome to the first World in 30 Minutes of 2020. A new dawn has broken, and Jeremy Shapiro, ECFR's research director, and myself, Mark Leonard, ECFR's director, are returning to the scene of our annual crime, which is to predict the year ahead and to look back at what the last 12 months have brought. And because we're scrupulously honest, we don't try and leave the errors that we made in 2019 and 2019. We're going to start the year by facing up to all of our worst predictions. So, before we look forward at this wonderful new year of 2020, which we're about to go into, Jeremy, should we go back and look at what we said would happen in 2019? Yeah, I mean,
1: if we must, I think we have no choice but to grade ourselves, but it's a little bit painful. It feels a little bit like sort of eating your own vomit to look at last year's predictions. Our first prediction for last year, however, does make us look pretty good. The prediction was that Trump takes control of U.S. foreign policy. The idea would be that this would be the year, 2019 would be the year in which Trump finally got to, implement some of his preferences. And I think that you see on things like Syria, Afghanistan, and Iran, that this was the year that Trump finally became his own man for better and for
0: worse. And our second prediction, maybe because we're sticking with America, was we equally Brilliant. We said that the Democratic House would impeach Trump. So we had this double prediction of Democrats winning the House and then impeaching Trump. So it looks pretty good from that perspective at the end of the year. Yeah,
1: I just want to note that the America predictions seem pretty good. Uh, The rest of it has a few more problems, but luckily we grade on a curve. A third prediction was that the North Korea denuclearization process would break down. We gave ourselves a half point on this, because although it didn't fully break down, it certainly didn't move anywhere, and there were periodic crises in it, and it might break down at any moment. So we thought we deserved a half point on that. That's the advantage of self-grading.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, even with self-grading, the fourth prediction um, is a big null point. We said that China was going to apply to join the CPTPP.
1: Yeah, not quite. Maybe next year. The fifth prediction was that the Ukraine crisis would flare up. We decided in a sort of epic effort at self-improvement to uh, give ourselves a half point on this one, not because we actually believed that the Ukraine crisis flared up in 2019 in Ukraine, but because we noticed that it flared up in Washington, which might be even more significant. So uh, that's not precisely the prediction that we're intending, but we'll take it.
0: How come I get all the ones where we were wrong, Jeremy? Just a coincidence, Mark. (laughs) The sixth (laughs) prediction was catastrophic as well. It was the global downturn triggering a financial crisis in Turkey. Lots of other crises happened in Turkey, but this year was relatively calm in financial terms compared to 2018. Yeah, I feel confident that if we just keep predicting that every year, eventually it'll be true. The
1: seventh prediction was that Saudi Arabia reconciles with the US and Europe after the crisis with the Jamal Khashoggi killing. Unfortunately, this one really does seem to have turned out to be pretty much true. Uh, You can already see the US and Europe and Saudi Arabia sort of
0: putting that behind them for better and for worse, mostly for worse. So our eighth prediction, unfortunately, was also quite an accurate one. We predicted that the World Trade Organization would de facto collapse. It carries on existing and meeting, but important parts of it, such as the appellate body with the dispute settlement mechanisms, Are all in a state of major disrepair, not least because of the assault on them from the Trump administration.
1: The ninth prediction was that the populace would begin a double movement, which would mean which means that even as they would continue to win elections, they would discover that it was quite difficult to govern and have to deal with all sorts of economic and political problems. We saw, I think, a fair amount of this in places like Hungary and Turkey and even in Hong Kong. But in one of the principal places that we thought it might happen in Poland, it noticeably did not. And the Polish government was strongly re-elected.
0: So we gave ourselves a half point on that one. And our final prediction was another triumphant one. We said that Europe would consider a digital tax. And we were a bit vague about what Europe meant. Certain bits of Europe have already introduced a digital tax and have had tariffs imposed on them as a result. Thank you, President Macron, for helping us uh, get that point. Yeah. So all told,
1: we got six and a half points out of 10 which uh, we think is pretty good. Last year, I think we did a little bit better than that, but you know, 2019 was a tough year. Let's move to
0: the predictions for 2020. Yeah, so 2020 is quite a, an epic year, and uh, we are going to make not just 10 predictions for this year, but we might even we'll see how we get how we do time wise. We might have some bonus predictions. Jeremy, do you want to start the uh, the running order? I don't really want
1: to, but I think I will, because our first prediction is the most painful one for me to make, which is that Trump will win his uh, re-election bid, but he will lose the popular vote by an even bigger margin than he did in 2016. In 2016, Trump lost the popular vote by about 3 million votes. I think this time it could be above 5 million, but it won't matter because
0: he will still maintain a pretty solid lead in the Electoral College. And our second prediction is that the European Union will decouple from American policy in the Middle East and North Africa and will have more leverage than it had in the past. In some ways, that's an easy prediction to make because the decoupling has been underway for a long time already on a lot of the big conflicts in the Middle East. On Iran, the EU has famously been supporting the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. It's famously also been supporting the two-state solution on Israel-Palestine and not, by and large, as a bloc, moved its capital to, to Jerusalem. But we think that the EU will become more united in a number of different areas, thinking about Syria, thinking about Iran, thinking about some of the regional dynamics, and will increasingly find itself on a different side of the debate. And... If it does that, we'll have some real assets to bring to bear on it, not least its economic power in the region, because Europeans trade almost over three times as much with the Middle East as China does and over four times as much as the United States. They sell half as many weapons as the US, but many more than Russia and China. And their bilateral aid to the region is also uh, absolutely enormous, almost as much as the US combined. So if these assets are put behind different policy agenda, we could potentially see the EU actually moving away from being a pure spectator in the region. And uh, we have a fantastic project on European leverage on the Middle East, which we'll put a link to on the, the show page.
1: Our third prediction is that Taiwan will become the next US ally to be abandoned. The Trump administration has made somewhat of a practice out of, um, not backing up its allies when it comes to getting into trouble with, uh, great powers that you can see that, um, clearly in the, in the, in the recent Ukraine crisis. You can also see it um, with the Kurds, Kurds, of course, and, but also with Saudi Saudi Arabia, where, um, the U.S. failed to back up Saudi Arabia when it was a So
0: Trump's running out of allies, but he'll find Taiwan as somebody yeah, to Yeah, fewer, fewer allies
1: to abandon. We feel like Taiwan could be the next one. It's very easy to imagine a somewhat minor conflict with China. It doesn't have to be about any sort of large-scale invasion or conflict, but a minor issue with China over the, the election or whatever, and that Trump fails to back Taiwan. And what this will do is not you know, immediately reintegrate Taiwan into China, but it will mean that in future... Coercive episodes, Taiwan will not feel like it has the United
0: States at its back and it will increase Chinese leverage dramatically. So our fourth prediction is another of these evergreen predictions. Jeremy was joking earlier about how we could just keep predicting the same thing every year and eventually it will be true. And that, in fact, is one of our core philosophies as uh, predictors. So two years ago, we were wrong when we predicted that Putin would be invited to the G8. But we think it's worth having another shot at this, not because we think it's a good idea. But Donald Trump has already said that he would like to have G8 meetings again and invite Putin along. He's hosting the G8, well, the G7 this year. And, um, you know, Emmanuel Macron has been trying to create new channels of dialogue. Boris Johnson's going to be looking for a massive, mega trade deal with, with, uh, with Trump post-Brexit. So, Maybe he won't say no. The Italians haven't been the most anti-Russian of, uh, of nations nor of the Japanese. So that would mean that Justin Trudeau would be the only person left to veto it. And that might encourage Trump to do it even yeah, more. He's so two-faced anyway.
1: <laughs> Our fifth prediction is that Ukrainian President Zelensky gets ahead of Europe in resolving the Donbras crisis. crisis. What we mean by that is that he's actually going to be willing to make concessions to Russia that, that the Europeans don't think are a wise idea. The Europeans are going to find themselves in a difficult position of trying to put pressure on the Ukrainians to be tougher vis-a-vis the Russians in the negotiations over Donbass.
0: Our sixth prediction is that the Green New Deal, Europe's Green New Deal, will become the next refugee crisis. And what we mean by that is that although the European Union has said that a Green New Deal and building a carbon-neutral Europe by 2050, is one of the central priorities for the new European Commission. It's an area where there was a mandate in the European elections because two-thirds almost of MEPs were elected on a platform to make that happen. You have a considerable number of parties, of citizens and of governments that are much more sceptical about moving towards this goal. Because though Obviously, climate is the ultimate symbol of one world. The canonical issue that knows no frontiers. The effects of moving towards carbon neutrality are not shared equally. And the countries that have to move the furthest are going to be very resistant to what they see as protectionist moves by the richest and most developed countries in Europe to pass on the costs to people who are only just catching up. In development terms. So in that sense, what's happening in the European Union is a sort of minor model of the global dispute where the core of mission emissions now are coming largely from what used to be seen as the, as the global south. The biggest emitters are, are these sorts of countries, but they think it's very hypocritical for the, the West to be uh, telling them to cut their emissions radically, having had many decades of extremely carbon-intensive development themselves and want to be bailed out. What we could see is if that bailout doesn't happen effectively, the Green New Deal could actually end up becoming the next culture war within the EU, splitting it between East and West, as the refugee crisis did, but also fueling populist movements in all European societies, as we saw with the eruption of the Gilets Jaunes protests in France, as well as anti-climate change moves by big political parties like the Alternativa for Deutschland in Germany and the True Finns party in Finland. The seventh crisis is that succession, the idea of succession, will become a dominant feature in a
1: lot of parts of the world in the next year. What we mean by that is that as sort of authoritarians have gained power in a lot of countries around the world, they're going to start to see that they're going to have to struggle with the traditional weakness of authoritarian systems, which is succession. The great thing about democracy is that it actually has a very standard way of moving from leader to leader authoritarian systems have a lot harder time we're going to see particularly in russia and possibly in turkey but also even to an extent in the u.s which is obviously not an authoritarian system but has a quite authoritarian leader that succession how do you get the leader to leave how do you decide who the next leader is and how do you make sure that the that the succession doesn't introduce instability into the system is going to become a dominant feature of a lot of societies around the world in fact even in germany In fact, even in Germany, although I expect that to be somewhat more orderly than in Russia or Turkey.
0: So the eighth trend is going to be the next wave of the US-China trade war. Firstly, it morphed into a tech war around 5G and the designation of a lot of Chinese companies as threats to US security. But what we could see over the next few months, even as China and the US do a deal on trade, there's new flanks opening up, and we think that the most significant one could be around financial services and the listing of Chinese companies on American stock exchanges, something which Marco Rubio and other people in Congress are already working out plans on. This will become part of a generational struggle which will infuse every single aspect of the relationship between China and the U.S., and make this process of selective decoupling into even more of a reality than it has been in recent months. Okay, well,
1: that's something to look forward to. The uh, ninth trend is that data rules become the new GMOs in a new global contest to set standards. What we mean by that is that the struggle over genetically modified organisms in past years enabled the European Union to sort of leverage its regulatory power and to set the rules for how uh, genetically modified organisms could be used throughout the world, particularly in Africa, but in lots of other places as well, and even to a degree in the United States. We think that the next front in this battle, one that we've already seen opening up with the GPDR. GDPR. GDPR, right. They See, they've already set the order of the acronym. We think that the next front in this battle, including with the GPDR. GDPR. Oh my God, I can't do this one. <laughs> is going to be the ability to set data rules. And we're seeing that uh, Europe is really moving out ahead in its efforts to decide what are the appropriate privacy regulations, what digital regulations could be, and we're making a strong move toward not only acquiring digital sovereignty, but also trying to set the rules for the contested parts of the world. This probably won't affect China, and the United States very much, but it may well have impact in some of what we're going to call the third areas in Latin America, in Africa, and certainly in Europe itself. So this is a critical area for Europe to be able to maintain control, but also to exercise uh,
0: leverage outside of Europe. Indeed, even sovereignty. Even sovereignty, if we want to use that loaded word. So our 10th trend, our final one of the main trends is That protest movements erupting all over the world are going to reinforce authoritarianism by which Jeremy, I think this was your trend. Why don't you explain what that means? (laughs) It's so confusing that we don't, you don't even know what it means. Yeah. What we mean
1: is actually that the protest movements are going to bubble along in a lot of these authoritarian countries and in democratic countries. But democratic countries will have to respond to it and the governments will become weaker. We've already seen some democratic and semi-democratic countries respond to this, like in Lebanon and in Chile. But in the more authoritarian countries, they have a crackdown option, which they will use. Uh, And so a protest movement, which has similar origins in democratic and authoritarian countries, will actually end up reinforcing authoritarian rules as authoritarian countries are better able to maintain their stability while
0: democratic countries... Are thrust into greater instability and have to change governments. All right. Well, that, these were obviously quite big trends, but we think 2020 is going to be so action-packed, such a massive year that it would be remiss of us not to end with a couple of bonus trends. Jeremy, why don't you do the first bonus one? Yeah, the
1: first bonus one is, is sort of comes in the wake of the British election, which just occurred a couple of days before recording this podcast. And the, the general prediction is that the UK will fail to complete a trade deal with the EU as it's supposed to in 2020, because it's simply too complicated. We think that that's actually right. But the bonus prediction is that no one will really care that much. Because uh, Brexit debates in 2020 are not going to be like the Brexit debates in 2019. They're going A lot of heat is going to come out of them after January 31st, when the UK officially Leaves the uh, the European Union. All of the experts understand that leaving the European Union officially is just the first step in a very long process to define the relationship with the EU. And in fact, on February first, very little is going to change in terms of regulations within the UK. It still means, I think, that politically it will become a lot less interesting. Everybody in the UK is incredibly tired of talking about Brussels. I can't emphasize this enough. It's the first thing that everyone says, and so. They'll stop talking about it. And that means that if Boris Johnson misses his date, uh, supposedly he has to say by June whether he will uh, request an extension. If he does that by June or if he manages to
0: request an extension later, no one will, it won't really make very much news. Okay, so we're getting our Brexit predictions done. Yeah. <laughs> Final prediction, and this is one which is there by popular demand, because in previous years people have complained that we haven't spoken enough about the Balkans. Balkans, we
1: care about you.
0: So... For those Balkan experts out there who want a prediction about the Balkans, we are arguing that the European Union will find a third way in the Balkans this year. This isn't just a nostalgic tribute to a period where British and American politics were more predictable um, and uh, centrist than they are today. The idea of the third way is that one of the big disputes, tragic disputes of 2019 was over the idea of opening accession negotiations with northern Macedonia and Albania. Because the French president vetoed the opening of negotiations with those two countries, we are going through a major debate and discussion about rejigging the enlargement process, which might end up in hopefully re-energizing the EU's engagement with the Balkans. Because the big danger, I think, was that accession negotiations were going to be opened with those two countries and that they would then be forgotten and that the accession negotiations would go nowhere as indeed many of the other negotiations have gone with other countries. If we are forced to think in harder terms about what kind of relationship we want to have, what kind of relationship we can offer and how we can engage with the Balkans in a way that makes the European path attractive amidst greater competition from the Chinese, the Russians and other players in the region, that can only be a good thing. And maybe out of the the sort of tragic letdown of of North Macedonia, which happened in 2019, we could see a brighter third way being carved out in our closest neighbourhood in twenty twenty.
1: Okay, so, you know, if you have additional predictions to tell us, if you think that our grading is actually yet more unfair than usual and want to complain about that, you probably find plenty of support among our colleagues. So please let us know if you have any additions, objections, or just outright complaints and we'll definitely consider those for next year and we uh, but I predict that we won't take them into account
0: so write to us at ecfr.eu. we will put links up to our great our self-grading for this year and the predictions when we have a chance to write them up for for 2020 at our website which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts do let your friends and family and other people that you have come across know about the podcast by writing about it on your social media page or ours and give us a great review and a rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever platform it is that you are using to download this podcast on. But for now, from Jeremy Shapiro and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. Goodbye. The researcher of Esefars podcast is Jonathan Hakenbosch and Hannah-Sophie Bowman and our editor is Marlene Riegel.